0: basically the only reason it has anything to do with the x-men is that these idiot aliens have this weird stupid effing prophecy about colossus destroying the world okay whatever (laughs) man
1: This is week three of X-Month, our introspective take on the modern era of everyone's favorite mutants, the X-Men. If you're just tuning into the series, so far we've covered Jim Lee's record-breaking 1991 relaunch of X-Men and Grant Morrison's mind-bending 2001 run on New X-Men a decade later. And today we hop ahead just a few years to when Marvel hired TV darling Joss Whedon for his first big run at comics. 2004's Astonishing X-Men.
0: And as always, if you got a comic you'd like us to review, email us at qtdcomics at gmail.com. The longer that inbox remains empty, the more likely it is that Google will flag us as Russian hackers, or we will just be incredibly, incredibly sad.
1: (laughs) And, you know, maybe more people would actually be listening to our podcast um, other than your Auntie Penny.
0: It's Auntie Pinky, my friend, and she is the only fan that we need. So I have a question. If she's actually listening to our podcast,
1: is she reading the books before she listens? Are we just like really spoiling the hell out of like some of comics greatest works?
0: We are spoiling it for her, but she listens not for the comics, but for the sweet, melodious sounds of our two voices.
1: So Joss Whedon's launch of Astonishing X-Men was a pretty interesting move by Marvel for a lot of reasons. This was not the first time a fan-favorite TV writer had been hired to reinvigorate a popular superhero series. Kevin Smith is one that comes to mind. There are a few others. But Joss Whedon had this like really loyal following from his runs on beloved shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the critically acclaimed but quickly canceled Firefly. But this was also Marvel's second attempt in just a few years to reinvigorate the X-Men, almost right after Grant Morrison, who we just spent some time talking about. And while Whedon picked up on many of the threads... Grant Morrison established a smaller team, a more quote unquote realistic take. He undoes more than a few of the inventive takes that Morrison had introduced and adds his own kind of trademark Joss Whedon quippy take on superheroes, young female leads, drama, and dysfunction. Throwing a bunch of super cameos from the Marvel Universe, a brand new intergovernmental agency acronym in SWORD, SWORD, SWORDs, and one of the most forgettable alien species in the Marvel Universe. And Frankly, then you've got a semi fresh, mostly fun
0: but often familiar take on the X-Men. So I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Sagel. And we are two guys who aren't sure if it's appropriate in this day and age to be talking about so much shit about the mutants, but we were we we're gonna do it anyway. You know,
1: Bolivar Trask, the government's calling they'd rather you tear those muties a new one with some new sentinels, not with your wicked words. Bolivar Trask did nothing wrong. <laughs> I'm going to shut up before I say something very inappropriate on this podcast. (laughs) So this is probably the fastest turnaround that we have done on a Quarantine Comics episode. It was just a couple of days ago, you and I sat down and had a chat about Grant Morrison's new X-Men, and now Astonishing X-Men, which probably came out. A couple of months after Grant Morrison's run. I'm guessing Marvel had to be teeing this up while Grant Morrison was finishing his run. We plowed through it in two days and decided just to get on the air. So what's your
0: initial take, first reaction? Because This is the first time you're reading it, right? No, this is the second time or the third time, actually. I read it actually soon after it came out because I was really excited about Grant Morrison's run and I was really excited to see Joss Whedon's take and rereading it for however many times it is. I am kind of struck by the differences because before it was just two very distinct writer's takes on on the X-Men. Yeah, it's almost like competing ideologies. Yeah. It's two weirdly similar
1: takes, almost like Magneto and Professor X, but I'm not sure if one is more optimistic and one is more
0: pessimistic about their place in the world. I will say that I don't think Joss Whedon was as interested in the X-Men's place in the world as Grant Morrison was. Grant Morrison really tried to situate the X-Men in the world of the Marvel Universe, and for Grant Morrison, they seemed to sit in a very isolated corner, which made sense because they constantly had their backs against the walls. They really had very few allies they had to survive based off of their own resources and what we see in Joss Whedon's run is they actually fraternize with other superheroes in the Marvel universe when they need to borrow a flying car they call Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four they work with with Spider-Man they work with Iron Man so they're much less isolated and Joss Whedon's take it's much more just fun but it's much more surfacy as well there are some things from Grant Morrison's run that he continues to use like the villain. Cassandra Nova, the team structure, kind of a smaller team. But in terms of a lot of the ideas that Grant Morrison tried to explore, for Joss Whedon, it seems more mostly like If Grant Morrison was using these plot devices and villains to explore who the X-Men are and what they mean to the world, Joss Whedon is using those same devices for the purposes of entertainment, for the purposes of launching a great action story. It makes sense. If I were at Marvel's corporate office,
1: it's kind of the right place. Like, oh, Grant Morrison... We liked the superficial stuff that he did, right? He made the costumes more or less match the movies. He winnowed down the team. And without rocking the boat completely, they bluntly did undo a lot of what Grant Morrison did. But superficially, it was the same. It's effectively the same team plus or minus a couple. And I actually read somewhere, I I might get this wrong. Grant Morrison wanted to have Colossus on the team, but they had just killed him. And he wanted to respect that. It's not the revolving door of dead mutants. And some fan said something about Emma Frost and how she'd been underutilized character. And Grant Morrison actually wrote that fan back. So like, oh my God, yeah, I'm going to do this. And so Emma Frost becomes a fleshed out, realized member of the X-Men and new X-Men by Grant Morrison. And remember, he wanted Colossus, but was like, we're not bringing a dead character back. And what did Joss Whedon do? Spoiler alert, Colossus, who was killed prior to Grant Morrison's run, gets brought back. And it's just kind of like this book reminds me on so many levels, now that I've read it in the the current era we're in, of the last Star Wars movie. It was just like, hey, let's bring back that guy that you like who does that thing to do all those familiar beats with the fun that you like, right? Let's not go deep. And never mind what that last guy provocatively, controversially did. I'm referring to Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi with Grant Morrison and the new X-Men. It's like, hey, never mind all that stuff. We're actually going to undo so much of the things that were done versus
0: dealing with the consequences. I feel their ambitions were just so different. We talked about Grant Morrison's ambitions in the previous episode of this podcast, so we won't get into it here, but it seems like Joss Whedon was fundamentally interested in telling just like really rousing action stories with quippy characters. And Grant Morrison was fundamentally interested in where the X-Men are situated in the world, and a large part of that is the prejudice that they constantly face. And Joss Whedon is interested in this first arc. The cure. Because that's where you have this mutant cure that's been developed. But afterwards, he kind of throws that aside side. And then it becomes X-Men fighting their danger room, which has become sentient. And then X-Men fighting a really tedious and boring alien species. And that's when you can see this transition of the X-Men, you know, Grant Morrison trying to really look at the X-Men in terms of how they cope with prejudice, how they cope with inequality, to, you know what, let's just make them kind of like a typical superhero group. And you see that transition start to happen in Joss Whedon's run. And... Looking at the next couple of episodes of Astonishing X-Men, after Joss Whedon was done, Warren Alice, and subsequent writers, it definitely started to look more like a very typical superhero group.
1: Don't tell me too much about the Warren Alice run because I haven't read it yet. But something that strikes me about that transition you mentioned is at the very beginning of the run, I think the first book was solid. And it's called Gifted. I found that run really good. And one thing specifically to that transition is... They get into a firefight with some supervillains, and the guns look like S.H.I.E.L.D. technology, S.H.I.E.L.D. being effectively the CIA of the Marvel Universe. And there's a scene where Cyclops goes and talks to Nick Fury, the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., and he's like, yo, what the hell, man? And... Nick doesn't like Scott Summers, Cyclops. He's like, I'm only here because I I liked your boy, Professor X. And there's a little bit of borderline, you're racist, no, I'm not racist stuff. And then as the volumes progress, they encounter the new intergovernmental organization, SHIELD's about what's going on in the world. SWORD is about what's going on in the galaxy. So they're effectively SHIELD in space. And they meet the head of SHIELD in space. And it starts off as a pretty adversarial relationship. But by the end of it, Beast is asking their green-haired head, Agent Brand, out on a date. And so this transition is, it started out, the government, we don't like you, we don't approve of you, to, hey, we had a space adventure. You
0: guys aren't half bad. Yeah, it's a very abrupt shift. And also when you think about the Grant Morrison run, every conflict that happens in that run is mutant related. And that kind of goes with the rules that Grant Morrison set down. The X-Men get involved when there's a mutant related conflict. Even
1: in previous eras, they did the same thing. They never really showed up to save the world. They only showed up to save the world if a mutant was involved, be it Magneto or... Someone else.
0: In Joss Whedon's run, there's definitely more of a doing the typical superheroics. There's a giant monster attacking New York. We'll team up with the Fantastic Four to tamp it down. And to Joss Whedon's credit, there's a reason for that. There's an internal logic behind that, which is that the X-Men are trying to do these very kind of splashy, typical superheroic activities. PR. It's PR. X-Men want to show that they're just standard, regular, run-of-the-mill superheroes, and they're just going to fight for the things that superheroes typically fight for. It's an interesting idea that he brings up, but he doesn't really follow through with. Yeah, there's even a really great moment.
1: And again, it's the MCU continuity, all these superheroes are talking stuff before the MCU was a thing. But literally, Sue Storm, I think, says, hey, let's get on the camera together. Let's stand side by side. And it's just kind of a nod to that. I don't mind it because that's kind of Joss Whedon or Cyclops's. hey, this is my hypothesis. Professor X outed us to the world, even though that was what Cassandra Nova did, right? Opposing us Professor X. And one thing I will say I like, and there are a lot of things I like, but they do talk about the consequences of what happened in Grant Morrison's run. Mm. One, we were outed to the world. So now we need to not be in like black leather suits with corporations all over the world. You know, let's act like superheroes. Two, I think that's one of the things Nick Fury says. Your boy Magneto did this. And Cyclops is like, my boy, we're not all the same. So the consequences of Magneto tearing apart New York isn't wiped under the rug so much.
0: Temporarily, but then like much later, you see Spider-Man swinging through Manhattan and Manhattan looks great. I mean, they rebuilt fast. So it seems like he acknowledged it for the first arc. And then by the second or third arc of his run, Manhattan was 100% back to normal and no one was referencing it again. And when we were were talking about Grant Morrison's run, how anticlimactic it felt that Magneto did property damage, just destroyed Manhattan because it's going to be repaired very quickly with very little consequence indeed it was Marvel remembered it through the first part of Joss Whedon's run and then by the end of Joss Whedon's run it was totally forgotten so that I always find a little bit superhero comics superhero comics even though the stakes are like the world is going to be destroyed it never really feels like the world is ever at threat. And that actually ties to the end of Joss Whedon's run, when the world is literally at threat, but we always know that it's not going to actually be destroyed. Well, it's almost uh, symbolic. Again, spoils
1: everything, right? Giant bullet being fired by an alien race. Kitty Pride saves the Earth. And if you know who Kitty Pride is, guess how she uses her powers to keep the giant bullet from striking the Earth. Literally, the danger just passes right through. To me, that's, that's
0: symbolism in a lot of ways. I also say that I've always found the X Men in space storylines to be the worst storylines. What? No,
1: no. I like
0: Okay, so you like those?
1: Here's what I like about it: they're hated and feared on Earth, and when they're in space, they're not mutant trash. They're trash from Earth, (laughs) like, and they're literally they literally are representing us because they're from our planet. To the shower, the brood, whatever. They don't care that they're mutants. (laughs) <laughs> in fact they hate them because they're from earth and it's like these people who are hated and feared on earth the analogy for me is black african-americans fighting in wars for america overseas overseas they're they're one of us they're americans when they come home they're hated and feared and that's mutants in space
0: adventures they literally have this weird juxtaposition when they're out in space that's actually an interesting take on it and my reason for disliking it is its the same as the reason that you like it so much, which is that once they get into space, all of the things that make the X-Men unique disappear. They're just superheroes in space. Yeah, they're just superheroes in space. So that's interesting. Like, what you like about it is what I really dislike about it. There was a run, and I think it was a Jim Lee Uncanny X-Men run,
1: which I don't know where it is. It's before the one we did, where they go into space and deal with the shower. Because that's the other like edge that the X-Men have. And they they introduce it over many runs by, by different authors. The X-Men literally have bleeding edge alien technology that the Fantastic Four doesn't have, the Avengers don't have. And it's it's like one of the, other than their actual genetic gifts, it's just another edge that they've got because maybe they've transcended humanity and the aliens are cool with that. Yeah. So gosh, Ryan, what are some other things you hate about this run?
0: <laughs> I actually liked it. I found it really, yeah. really enjoyable. I mean, except for that last arc. I except for the like...
1: last one, The last arc makes me, if you look at the cover to the last arc, it's such a beautiful cover. The core X-Men from this series are running and attacking. And there's a couple of your other fan favorite X-Men's, Storm, Nightcrawler. And you flip over, it's a full place smash. And you've got the rest of the Marvel Universe, which Joss Whedon has been hinting at. And you're like, wow. And I, I actually didn't remember how it ended. When I reread it, I was like, oh man, I know Joss Whedon's just going to give me this amazing multiversal splash page of all the heroes teaming up with the X-Men, and he doesn't. <laughs> like, it just, all the things I wanted him to do in this volume, he didn't. He set up a really interesting alien species, and I found myself reading all the drama of the alien species and just not caring. I was like, "Who who's on what side? There's a rebellion,
0: there's a i just there's a prophecy i just don't care yeah exactly that's why i don't care i don't care about the species i mean let that planet die you know who gives a shit it's not particularly interesting their problems are their own and again all of the stuff that makes the x-men interesting they're very terrestrial problems their problems with prejudice that is what makes the x-men interesting to me
1: yeah but there's a bit of a hitler's baby sort of situation This race knew something about the future, and they were like, you know what? We're going to take out Earth. We're going to fire a missile or a bullet at
0: Earth. I I think there were components that Mm -hmm. were good. I just didn't care about the alien drama. I mean, even that is sort of like kind of typical. I mean, Marvin the Martian and the Looney Tunes wanted to take out Earth. Um, But again, not because of the Hitler's baby paradox. You're right. It had nothing to do with Hitler's baby. I think with Marvin the Martian, it had to do with spoiling his view. But it feels very typical, right? Alien species wants to blow up Earth. Heard it before, seen it before. It's wrapped around Joss Whedon's much better dialogue and the kind of the fun character interactions. Yeah. But I wish she could have found a, better conflict to use at its core because joss whedon is so good at showing those interpersonal dynamics He's shows so good at doing those one-liners you know what might have
1: been better and again this would have actually helped joss whedon with some of the things he does so well don't try to invent a new alien species just make it the kree like sure again grant morrison already did the shire you don't need to do another brood thing because then there's more stakes there's more stakes left in the marvel universe of remember that one time this other alien species we interact with a lot tried to fire a fucking bullet at earth. like
0: Yeah. Well, see, that's what I liked about Grant Morrison's run is that he actually reinvented a lot of familiar... The Shi'ar. I always pronounce the Shi'ar. Bird people. It's okay. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all alien shit. I used to pronounce it Magneto, and then someone corrected. I did too, until I saw the X-Men cartoon, and not the 99 one, the 1989 one. Oh boy. Where Wolverine was speaking with an Australian accent. Was oh, that like uh, foreshadowing something? It kind of was, inadvertently, yeah. Did you ever see that 1989 X-Men cartoon? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh shit, it's called Pride of the X-Men, and it kind of focuses on Kitty Pride's first day. Wow. And they only did one episode. i have to find that.
1: Put it in the show notes, Ryan.
0: Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, okay. So, Grant Morrison reinvented a lot of familiar aspects of the X-Men and even the the new villains he created, like Cassandra Nova and John Sublime. A lot of their origins came from the X-Men lore, right? He's kind of like looking at the X-Men lore and finding a way to create a new villain that springs from that. In Ord from Breakworld has nothing to do with any of that shit. There's a sudden prophecy about Colossus destroying the world. Okay, fine. But that's just something that Joss Whedon threw in there to justify them doing what they're doing. And I feel like that detachment from the X-Men also made Breakworld much less interesting. It wasn't a reinvention. It wasn't something that sprang from the original X-Men lore. And if you're going to actually create something brand new from scratch, it really needs to be amazing. Here's the thing. I think he did make the effort of the world building...
1: Literally, there's competing ideologies on this
0: planet. Yeah.
1: Et cetera, et cetera. But it just... It was too much. It's almost like you need less.
0: Yeah, because you're asking us to care for something that we really implicitly don't care about. And I, I hate
1: to keep litigating Grant Morrison versus Joss Whedon, so let's get back to the book, but the cooler, the, even the more Joss Whedon-y thing to do would have been take the Cree, like literally take an existing alien species or the Inhumans or something, take an existing property within the Marvel Universe because you're playing with Marvel sandbox
0: and go to town. Because again, there would be more consequences. The Breakworld people are throwaway villains. I think he does a much better job with danger because danger actually comes from the danger room. It implicates Professor X Oh, as you mentioned, we were saying this over text. This was
1: this a precursor for Ultron?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Danger is essentially Ultron from the second Avengers movie. It's it's an emotional robot with severe daddy issues i read this before the second avengers movie came out so I, you know i didn't realize that i'm kind of going back on it now it's kind of obvious that for whatever reason joss whedon really likes emotional robots one thing as i was flipping through and this is why i love not having it on the tablet like, and flip through it while we're talking there's one scene
1: it's one take that i love that he did joss whedon has a lot of really great moments that's what i'll say like morrison had some really great issues Whedon had a couple good arcs, but he had some really great moments. And one of those great moments is all the X-Men are jumping in the escape pods. They split up the team to land on Breakworld. And half of the X-Men, I think it's Wolverine, Armor colossus and kitty pride you can see the escape pod shaking They're like oh my god oh this is gonna suck i'm really worried about everyone else and you cut to everyone else beast agent brand cyclops and emma frost and emma frost is using her telepathy for them to all just be sitting in a nice room having tea and beast is like that's very thoughtful of you emma and she's like well good lord why should we endure all that centrifugal nonsense two lumps dear (laughs) like i There are
0: moments like that that I loved. I think Whedon is really good, like Morrison, at using the X-Men's powers creatively and putting them in interesting scenarios based off of their powers, rather than just having them shoot their way out of it or use mind control. He's very good at kind of playing with the mutant powers and and being creative with them. And I actually really appreciated that about Joss Whedon's run. It's funny.
1: I flipped through another book. I was reading through this, knowing who Joss Whedon is now, more familiar with what he did for the MCU, and he's writing it like a TV show. He's literally writing like a CW TV show. It's not the same art admiration I've mentioned for other comics. There's whole one page scenes, right? Where Kitty and Colossus walk into the kitchen in the morning and Wolverine just kind of stares at them and he's like, about mm. time. Or the scene where it's cut to a kid at the X mansion just watching TV and Kitty Pride falls through the roof naked. <laughs> like. Like, there's are just moments and scenes. They're literally scenes
0: that are- Yeah, I mean, he has those kind of very human moments. I've noticed he kind of likes to have these reactions that are almost very cinematic, where something happens and a character just slowly assesses what happened, kind of in that Wolverine moment you just mentioned. And then you kind of see in their facial expression, the dawning realization, and then they- react to it. And it's been a whole page just kind of setting that up. I'd actually really admire that about Joss Whedon because you don't really see that a lot in comics. I actually, you do see it nowadays. This was early. Yeah, it's 2004. And and he's actually slowing down the action and just letting the kind of the characters breathe and react. I know you didn't read the Warren Ellis run, but definitely in the Warren Ellis run, which happened after Joss Whedon, it was much more plot driven and much kind of much, much faster there. There wasn't as much time to just kind of let the characters be who they are.
1: Yeah. Enough of those human moments. Right. One thing I will say I hate that we keep comparing it, but I've said this multiple times. One thing I hate and one thing I love. I hate the bait and switch when you find an amazing writer with an amazing artist, and then the artist leaves for whatever reason. And that happened on Grant Morrison's run. There was no consistent style to the art. You thought you were going to get a lot of Frank Quietly and Frank Quietly's moments are beautiful. They are amazing, but he's there for do the issue count, probably less than 30% of it. The astonishing X-Men run, John Cassidy does every single issue. And so there's a consistent give and take between the artist and the writer that honestly makes it stronger for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know we keep comparing it to Grant Morrison's run. And I don't think it's possible not to just because they happened back to back back to back. And they're both two auteurs, you know, who came with unique vision. So you kind of have to size them up against each other. There are definitely issues in Grant Morrison's run where it seemed like he had every intention to have Frank quietly draw it. For instance, the issues with Phantom X or Phantom or however you pronounce his name, where he's kind of doing these acrobatics and you're supposed to be following his body as he spins and jumps and shoots people. I mean, that's a Frank quietly thing. Frank quietly always kind of has these long shots where you see these characters do these impossible acrobatic stunts. I mean, that's what Frank quietly is good at. Twisting the body in really unusual positions. And you kind of look at that and you're thinking, I think Frank Quietly was supposed to draw that, but he couldn't. So they got Igor Cordy or whoever to do it because Frank Quietly maybe was behind schedule. But- on Joss Whedon's run, John Cassidy is actually one of my favorite illustrators. I know nothing else that he's done. Planetary. He did Planetary with Warren Ellis. There you go. Yeah, Planetary was before Astonishing X-Men. I think he had finished his run on Planetary, but he was very good at doing these big epic shots. Like Planetary, it was like a big screen sort of book that had yeah. godzilla like creatures and ghosts we've got to do that on this podcast planetary yeah i'm down with doing planetary i love planetary and an evil version of the fantastic four in planetary yeah. those were the villains. Yeah. and john cassidy just did an amazing job he's an incredibly versatile illustrator and he did a fantastic job with astonishing x-men those quieter moments, as well as those action sequences. It seems like every interaction led to bloodshed in Joss Whedon's, <laughs> even between like Beast and Wolverine, people who were supposed to be colleagues, they always ended up like trying to kill each other. Beastie ate off half of Wolverine's leg.
1: Screw it. We're comparing the two at this point in this episode.
0: I think it was fair though. Who is the
1: favorite character in Joss Whedon's run? And then who was your favorite character in the Grant Morrison run? <sighs>
0: That's a good question. I, I, I mean, Emma Frost always kind of just yeah. jumps out. Uh, every time she says something, she just kind of pops. I, I actually really liked what Grant Morrison did with The Beast, which we talked about last week. You know, he's depressed, and he doesn't really ever say that, but you can tell. And I thought that, that was very, very subtle. Uh, the, the thing about the Joss Whedon one is everyone's kind of quippy, right? So Emma Frost kind of loses her power because she, in Grant Morrison's run, she's the one with the best lines. In Joss Whedon's run, everyone kind of has these quippy lines. So she doesn't stick out as much. Hard to say who I found most endearing in Joss Whedon's run. I know I'm supposed to say probably Kitty Pride. And I, you know, I enjoyed her, but she's kind of the straight character, right? I'm a sucker for Kitty Pride. And yeah, for me, it was Emma Frost and Grant Morrison.
1: And then the flip side of the coin, Kitty Pride in this run. And again, maybe I'm using the words incorrectly here, but I felt like Grant Morrison's run was a much more cynical realistic, but pessimistic take on the X-Men. As you said, they're back against the wall. Joss Whedon's run as a much more hopeful run. In in each book, the characters are introduced or joining the X-Men, right? So- Emma's coming to the X-Men in Grant Morrison's run after the Holocaust at Genosha. And the very beginning scenes of Joss Whedon's run, Kitty Pryde's coming home to the X-Men, but now as an adult. And
0: so I got a very every take. I absolutely agree with that, actually. You said it earlier in this episode, and I was kind of processing that. Now I, I agree with that entirely because... When you look at, as I mentioned, Grant Morrison's run, the X-Men are incredibly, are totally isolated. You really don't see any other character in the Marvel Universe, except maybe Captain America shows up in a screenshot. Her at Genosha, the mutant haven city, where everyone is just killed in the first episode. 16 million people out, yeah. That's what catalyzes Grant Morrison's run. It's this mass murder. And people trying to cope with it, people trying to deal with it, and- You close on Manhattan, and you close on the dark future, et cetera, et cetera. And Joss Whedon's run, by contrast. The first conflict is that a cure for being a mutant has developed, and the X-Men are suspicious- of it. For Grant Morrison, the stakes are immediately very, very, very high. And with Grant Morrison's run ends, it's the death of Jean Grey and Scott and Emma making out over her tombstone. Uh, <laughs> at, at the end of Joss Whedon's run, they're celebrating the salvation of the world. And in the way, it's the imprimatur to go on to have regular basic superhero adventures that don't have where the stakes aren't that high. That's actually what I miss. The most from Grant Morrison's run. As powerful as the X Men are, it's that feeling of being outnumbered, outmatched, and having to fight every day for your survival. And that wasn't there in Joss Whedon's run, and that really isn't there in any subsequent—I shouldn't say any subsequent X Men runs because they haven't really followed it that religiously. But it's not really something that you see a lot in in the X Men issues that I've that I've read. I
1: mean, but but the one thing I'll say. And this is where Grant Morrison's unoriginal. The X-Men are always with their back up against the wall. All the garbage versions of it, all the good versions of it. Very rarely is there a hopeful take on the X-Men. Seriously. Yeah. And they're hated and feared, hated and feared. You could play a drinking game, the allegories to racism, etc. And again, that's something that's really strong about the X-Men, but it, it, it's your senses start to get really dulled to it really fast. And again, Grant Morrison well. did it in a unique way.
0: But So why was Grant Morrison successful at conveying that? Because you are kind of right, right? You know, the X-Men are always hated and feared. How come with other writers, it almost feels like standard superheroics, whereas with Grant Morrison, you felt that angst that comes when nobody likes you and everyone's trying to kill you? Well, because he
1: tried to kill them from within, I think. I mean, again, that's not the first time it's happened with the X-Men, but off the bat... And it's the way he did it. Off the bat, Grant Morrison takes you on twists and turns. Boom, here's an extinction event: 16 million people killed. Boom. Here's Professor X's evil twin that's literally going to kick off an intergalactic civil war. The the alien race is going to come down to Earth and exterminate the rest of the mutants. Again, it's not that these sort of big ambitious things, I don't know about a 16 million genocide, but it's not the first time someone's tried to do terrible things to the X-Men with their back up against the wall in isolation, be it the Marauders and the Tunnels and killing off the Morlocks in the whatever, 80s or 90s, Siege Perilous, et cetera, et cetera. But the way Morrison did it And again, the way the great writers do it, he made it personal. He got really in with the characters.
0: I think that's it, what you just said, because there's definitely a psychological vulnerability. There's always psychic attacks in the X-Men, but in Grant Morrison's run, each and every X-Men has some sort of psychological vulnerability that they are working through, whether it's Jean Grey worrying that the Phoenix Force is going to come back and massacre everyone and she won't be able to control it, whether it's the Beast and his depression or Cyclops, who the hell knows what's even going on inside his head. We know that he's fucked up. We just don't know. How deeply because he's so
1: repressed. But I think the other thing Morrison does well, and other writers have done it too Morrison took some big swings at the students. He's like, you know what? This is a school. We're going to put a bunch of kids in the halls Mm. and watch how the kids react to it. And honestly, Whedon does it well. So to come back to Whedon, Whedon does the same thing. He doesn't get as broad in scope. He doesn't, I kind of hate that. We just ignored what happened to Beak? What happened to Angel? What happened to the Stepford Cuckoos and Quentin Quire? He just introduces Armor and Wing and a couple of other kids sitting around, like literally a teen drama, CW Kids. Yeah, but the reaction Grant Morrison did with the kids humanized the trauma of what was going on at this school. And,
0: and can I add to that? Yeah, please. The kids in Grant Morrison's run often reacted to the trauma by becoming villains, whether it was Quentin and his group or Esme. So you definitely saw sometimes the psychological reaction to this was to just go apeshit and rebel in the most violent way. The danger often, as you mentioned, came from within the school itself, the sanctuary, the safe space, which you don't have. Yeah, astonishing. It's an episode of Saved by the Bell. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're all kind of good looking. The biggest threat that comes from within is wing but he's essentially possessed by danger the villain it's not of his own volition that he decides to become a villain yeah i think that's actually one of the ways that that morrison is able to so successfully create this constant sense of threat there's no safe haven for the x-men even within their own school and even within their own pupils, from their own people, who they're supposed to protect, sometimes they just absolutely fail to protect them. And the fact that there's nowhere safe for the X-Men is what makes them always feel at risk versus other runs is basically, yeah, you know, the military hates them. Other evil mutants hate them. It's the usual villainy that you can kind of punch to defeat, you know?
1: I want to shit on Joss Whedon a little bit. One thing that really upset me, and it's kind of a swing he took, and he didn't go all the way through. He didn't follow through. And it's when they gave Kitty Pride her tapestry moment. Now, that's a reference to a Star Trek The Next Generation episode where Picard, literally in the flash of an instance... Experiences a whole lifetime of another man, raises a family, etc. And there's a moment when the X Men are being mind fucked by Cassandra Nova and the Hellfire Club, mm, okay where Kitty wakes up and you know survives whatever the thing is. And her and Colossus have a baby, and they raise the baby, and they take the baby away, and all these machinations to convince Kitty in the real world to go open up the Cassandra Nova tomb or whatever it is. And they touch on it briefly, but they're whisked off into space, and Kitty barely has the time to process the trauma of five pages of a lifetime and she literally had a kid and had it ripped away from her and it was it was fake it was a fantasy and that kind of character torture honestly in star trek the next generation they very rarely bring it up again they bring up Picard's trauma from being in the Borg but they never bring up the
0: trauma of living a whole goddamn lifetime (laughs) with the flute and everything but didn't watch that episode of the next generation one of the best but occasionally Rick and Morty and they kind of use that trope and Morty plays a video game Roy a life well lived and he basically lives his whole life as a guy named Roy until he loses the video game and then he realizes that he's been plugged into a game and even that was actually more impactful there was this prolonged moment in Rick and Morty where he's Roy and there's this dramatic music playing and these interactions with these other characters. And you're right, the Kitty pride thing just happened so fast. And I think also uh, there's this knowledge that given the circumstance that came before, that this is probably not real, which undermines its impact as well. But you're right, that moment, man. I mean, like, Whedon goes from one threat, which is Cassandra Nova, possibly trying to take over armor. There's a couple of panels where it looks like she's creating this psychic link with her, to suddenly, holy shit, the X-Men are whisked off transported into space and now they got to fight this lame order from Breakworld world character yeah yeah I, I that's the moment there are
1: two moments in book three where they just lost the script one not fulfilling the kitty pride trauma that you just did to me and taking them off to space like why not stay home and deal with the consequences of two emmas and all of and they kind of do in space but it's kind of when like oh here's another familiar thing the x-men do they go to space and it's from when they drop the kitty moment I'm like, oh, shit, there's going to be consequences. And then they whisk him into space. That's actually not too bad. I thought it was pretty bad. At the beginning of the space thing, they actually mentioned the trauma. Hmm. Scott and Emma aren't talking. Kitty's acknowledging the trauma she just went through. And then it just becomes, ha, 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 let's all resolve these issues in space and have some dogfight battles.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, that's the issue with that moment is that it's all external. The, the conflict really has nothing to do with the X-Men at all. It Basically, the only reason it has anything to do with the X-Men is that these idiot aliens have this weird stupid effing prophecy about colossus destroying the world okay whatever man assassinate colossus with a space laser or something like that jesus christ there's no reason for that to be the central conflict of joss whedon's run and yet it is and i think it really kind of undermines here here's what it is all three of the major conflicts ...are not interrelated.
1: It's not Seinfeldian enough. You've got Danger, you've got Cassandra Nova, you've got The Cure, which is linked to the aliens... uh, ...not the Robert Smith ones, the Kavita Rao one... ...and then you actually have the space aliens with the bullet... All four of those things, I don't need all four of them to be super interconnected, but I need them to be more interconnected.
0: Yeah, that's actually absolutely right. Like, danger kind of goes between them. There's a superhero, super villain, sorry, team-up between Ord and danger, but that team-up doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. And actually, in that team-up, there's a justification for it that they explain later on that actually undermines the threat of danger. Like, she can't actually kill the x-men and it's like well what's the fucking point of her she's a villain she's the x she hates the x-men she can't kill them that pretty much undermines her as a threat
1: the one thing i will say it's not too little too late but the thing i do appreciate at the end is kitty's sacrifice so there again could have been done a little bit better because if volume four hadn't sucked so much kitty's sacrifice would have hurt me more and i remember the first time i read it i was probably more it's kind of like the same the, the first time you go see a marvel movie you really enjoy it and the second time when you start thinking about it you don't but I, I I, like the way Kitty saved the world. I like the way that Kitty is gone. Although, spoiler alert, they bring her back, mm-hmm. they save her. I appreciated it. I genuinely did. I was really trying to figure out why Armor come along for the ride? They were slowly building her up. She's now Wolverine's new protege. Kitty was Wolverine's first protege, you know? So, I don't know. The ending of Volume 4 stuck the landing more than Grant Morrison's ending did. But
0: Volume 4 was so bad.
1: <laughs> I just couldn't... I just couldn't.
0: It was it was emotionally poignant, Kitty's sacrifice, but even as it was happening, you know she's going to come back. She's not going to die. They always bring them back. So even if that moment was good, based off of your copious readings of superhero comic books, you know it's not permanent. And I don't have to read the Wikipedia entry on Kitty Pride to know that she came back. I don't know for sure she came back, but I know for sure. She's definitely back, isn't she? Fun fact.
1: I think we're ready. You
0: need to ask me a question that we close these podcasts with. I need to ask you a question that we close these podcasts with. Which female superhero did you have the most unholy crush on when you were 13, Roman? Oh my God, come on. Ask the real question. The question the the listeners want to know. I'm actually grasping for that one right now. All right, Roman, you got me. What are we reading next week? Next week, we are fast forwarding Almost 20 years
1: to 2019's Jonathan Hickman, House of X, Powers of X. And there's not a lot of Kitty Pride in this one. But if you finish it and you love it, I actually just read another book after Powers of X called uh, Marauders, where Kitty Pride is a major character. And it's excellent. But, oh my God, House of X, Powers of X. Like Ryan, the last 20 years have been terrible for me in superhero comics. It's like an abusive relationship. I keep going back thinking it's going to be different. Oh, they got that writer that I like. And it's not good. It's just more of the same crap. And what Grant Morrison tried to do, he wrote a manifesto. He said he was going to change everything about the X-Men. Jonathan Hickman did the same thing. And Marvel gave him the keys to the car. And Jonathan Hickman said, no, this is a multi-year thing. We have to change the X-Men status quo in the Marvel universe. And They canceled all the X-Men books and for 12 consecutive weeks, I heard about this on a podcast I listened to, the Infinity Podcast, and I got so excited hearing these nerds talking about it that I walked across the street from my then startup office to Midtown Comics and once a week, I found myself back in a comic book store excited about the next X-Men comic for 12 weeks straight. It was the coolest thing ever. There were no Marvel movies in cinemas at the time and every week there was an amazing X-Men book and Ryan hasn't read this. And House of X, Powers of X, it's changed the X universe, it's changed the Marvel universe. I cannot wait to start talking about it.
0: House of X, Powers of X. A Hoxpox hox a hox pox on your house. <laughs> it's going to be so good. You're going to hate it. <laughs> I'm going to love it. It's going to be infectious. And that's
1: our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at QTDComics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. QTDComics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel.
0: And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.
1: And remember, you can't just throw people at all your problems, dear.